<clears throat> Thank you, Gary. And good morning, everybody. Glad you're here. If you're joining us online, we're equally happy that you're worshiping with us today. And again, I want to remind you, if you're watching online and uh, you've got some prayer requests and things that you'd like us to be praying about and you don't mind it being uh, shared, you can include that in the comments below the video. So how good are you about making a judgment on somebody based on a first impression? Someone that you didn't know, uh, had never seen before, and yet when you see them in an instant, how good are you at judging? There's a book called Blink, written by a guy, you may have heard of him before, his name is Malcolm Gladwell. He's a believer, uh, and he wrote this book to show people actually how often they make these subconscious decisions about people and how bad they are at it. And in that book, he includes this uh, story. It was about uh, a, an opera, rather it was a, a symphony, uh, and they were auditioning people. And they decided to change the way they were doing it because initially they believed their first impressions of listening to someone uh, was very accurate. They thought they were unbiased. But they were quickly disproven when they decided to start putting up screens that people would audition from behind so they could never see the person that was playing the instrument. And in 30 years in this particular uh, symphony, with the screens in place, the number of women, and this is the top U.S. orchestra, it increased fivefold. And instrumentalists who had previously been eliminated from consideration were now being accepted with these screens in place. Because when factors like outward appearances and, and unconscious prejudice were removed, then they were only looking at the ability of the person. And one person in particular uh, struck them when they began this new method of auditioning. It was a woman named Julie Landsman. And she played French horn. This was the Met. And at that time, there were no women in the brass section of the orchestra because it was commonly accepted that everyone knew a woman could not play the French horn as well as a man could. They knew this. But she came in, she sat behind the screen, and she played well. As a matter of fact, she said this, I knew in my last round that I had won before they told me. She said it was because of the way I performed the last piece. She said that she held a one note for a very long time. just to leave no doubt in their minds. And they started to laugh because they knew that she had gone well and above and beyond the call of duty in playing that last night. They still didn't know who it was. And when she came from behind the screen, there was a gasp. It wasn't just that she was a woman. It wasn't just because she held that bold high C note which was kind of a macho sound they expected to come from a man. It was because she had played before. As a matter of fact, she had rehearsed three times and played as a substitute before this. And they realized that they had been had. Because this time they listened just with their ears and they had no idea how good she was. See, we have these prejudices that are way down on a subconscious level. As much, we, as much as we want to think we don't have them there, we have them there. We don't know that they're there. In the passage that we're going to look at today, we see that God judges people very differently than we do. It says in 
this chapter, chapter 16. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't be impressed by his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. God does not view things the way men do. People look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. That leads us to this topic I want to talk about this morning. Well, how do I see people the way that God does? How do I see people the way that God does? We're going to be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 16. We'll read verses 1 through 13. Please stand with me as we read 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. <clears throat> the Lord said to Samuel, How long do you intend to mourn for Saul? I have rejected him as king over Israel. Fill your horn with olive oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse and Bethlehem, for I have selected a king for myself from among his sons. Samuel replied, how can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. But the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you should do. You will anoint for me the one I point out to you. Samuel did what the Lord told him. When he arrived in Bethlehem, the elders of the city were afraid to meet him. They said, do you come in peace? He replied, yes, in peace, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. So he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel noticed Eliab and said to himself, surely here before the Lord stands his chosen king. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't be impressed by his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. God does not view things the way men do. People look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesus called Abinadab and presented him to Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Then Jesse presented Shammah. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse presented seven of his sons to Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen any of these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, is that all of the young men? Jesse replied, there's still the youngest one, but he's taking care of the flock. Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we cannot turn our attention to other things until he comes here. So Jesse had him brought in. Now he was ruddy with attractive eyes and a handsome appearance. The Lord said, go and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn full of olive oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. The spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day onward. Then Samuel got up and went to Ramah. You may be seated. Again, continuing through the book of 1 Samuel. It's about trusting in times of transition. There's this rollover of leadership that they're seeing. They had judges, but the people wanted a king, so they got their king. But the king turned out to be not such a great king. That would have been King Saul. He was disobedient. He wouldn't accept the authority structures that God had put into place. So God rejected him, and he's bringing them a new king. And this new king is actually going to be a picture of the messianic king that's to come in the future. We're getting a taste of a Christ figure in the Old Testament in David that is now coming. And the people are going to be looking to David. He'll do well for a while. But again, we see that he was not the most evident choice. He was the youngest. He wasn't with the other sons that were presented. This was unusual. 
But God does things unusually. So I want to approach the topic this way. First of all, we'll see that God calls, he evaluates, he empowers. We'll look at those three things both in the context of the Old Testament and our modern context. And also, we'll talk about, well, how can I view people the way that God does? That'll be the There'll be five ways we'll talk about to view people the way that God does that I believe will be helpful to us. So the first thing we see in the text is that he calls. We read that in the text. Samuel was used by God. He was a prophet to be God's voice. That was the role of the prophet. They proclaimed God's word. And and what the prophet spoke was God's revelation. What the prophet spoke was worthy to be recorded in the pages of Scripture. And God makes his intentions for David known through this prophet Samuel. God, his calling continues in the next phase of his plan as well. You know, we see these these instances in the Old Testament happening. But in the New Testament, there's a new covenant. There was a new way in which God was going to relate to man. However, God does continue to call. But he does it differently in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, he did it through a prophet. Through the New Testament, he's going to do it through an evangelist. We see this in Hebrews chapter 1, 1 and 2, the change in program. After God spoke long ago in various portions and in various ways to our ancestors through the prophets, in these last days, he has spoken to us in a son whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he created the world. So the message to the Hebrews going to these Uh, These modern, the the New Testament time Jews was that, look, you put a lot of faith in the prophets, but someone has come, and we have this end times climax of revelation through Jesus Christ. And the writer of Hebrews, speaking to this Jewish audience, is saying, no matter how highly you esteem those those Old Testament writers, they weren't the heir of all things. So the revelation of Jesus Christ in the New Testament changed the program. But we are still called. And we see this in Romans chapter 8, verse 30. It says, and those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Now that verse is saying that you were chosen and you were called. And if you're sitting here this morning and you've trusted Christ for salvation, then guess what? You've been called. You were chosen, then called, then justified. That is to say you're put in right standing before God. We talked about that last week. And you will be glorified. This verse is speaking. The writer is so confident this glorification is going to happen. He's talking about it in the past tense. That is to say, someday the body you have right now will be glorified. When you're resurrected. Now, you may be thinking, well, listen, Chad, and this is a hard verse, I get that. And your experience probably tells you something else when you came to faith in Christ. Because you, it may have happened in like, uh, if you've been in Christianity a while, it may have happened like in a revival or a tent meeting. Maybe there was an invitation for people to come forward to trust Jesus Christ as their Savior. And you're thinking, well, well, look, I, I heard it. I decided to get up out of my seat. I decided to walk down the aisle. I decided to say the prayer. Well, guess what? All of these things were happening in the background. 
when you were doing all those things. If that doesn't twist your brain in a knot, you're not paying attention. But that's what happened. That's what the text is telling us. God called you. And how did he call you? Well, through the sharing of the good news from one person to another, through evangelizing. It is the honor of the Christian that we get to be the carrier of the gospel of Jesus Christ and share that with someone else so they can hear it and they can believe and they can be discipled and they can go and they can share it with someone else. So we have this ministry of multiplication. So God called someone to service back then, David, and he does it now. And when God calls you and calls you to salvation, he's going to call you to all kinds of cool stuff. It's not an easy calling. And when you respond to the call, you do it through faith. And guess what? When you did that, you gave it all up. God, wherever you're going to take me, you take me. As a matter of fact, when Christ was speaking to a group of people that had been following him for some time, he said, no one can be my disciple unless you take up your cross and you follow me. Now, what does that mean? Taking up one's cross means to put it on your shoulder. The Romans would make someone do this right before they were crucified as a way of saying, Rome was right and you were wrong. And you're going to carry that cross around the city to show everyone that Rome was right and you were wrong. So when you take up that cross, you're saying God was right. I'm going to do it his way. And whatever he shows me to do, I'm going to do. You think at six years old I thought I'd be up here preaching sermons? No. When I was 10 years old? No. 20? No. Started thinking about it, though. You don't know what God's going to call you to do. He calls us to do good works, it says in Ephesians 2.10. And not only does he call, but he also evaluates. Now, these things don't necessarily happen. This, this doesn't necessarily happen sort of linearly. These things happen uh, kind of all at once. And he evaluates in his own way. Look what it says again, starting in verse 6. When they arrived, Samuel noticed Eliab and said to himself, Surely here... Before the Lord stands as chosen king. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't be impressed by his appearance or his height. For I've rejected him. God does not view things the way men do. People look on the outward appearance. The Lord looks on the heart. So we have this prophet of God. And notice the prophet of God, the man chosen by God to be his mouthpiece. He's, he's struggling here. He thought he had God's program figured out. Well, he didn't. Now, it turns out David wasn't so bad looking either. It says he was ruddy and had attractive eyes, handsome appearance. It's totally not fair, but that's the way it is. But I can't help to think that this has gotten any easier through the years. And if you know the descriptions of Christ, they weren't terribly... Flowery. As a matter of fact, when uh, Isaiah was predicting the one that was to come, he said this about Christ in Isaiah 53. He sprouted up like a twig before God, like a root out of parched soil. He had no stately form or majesty that might catch our attention, no special appearance that we should want to follow him. 
There wasn't anything exceptional about the appearance of Christ that would draw people towards him. Because we look at the appearance of someone, and without discipline, we won't get past what's on the outside. When we do that, we miss out. Oftentimes, we miss out on a lot of wisdom uh, when we judge someone that way. I'm speaking from experience. When I was 17 years old, I was introduced to this guy. His name's Francis Schaefer. He's a, he's a brilliant theologian. As a matter of fact, last week I, I quoted him quite a bit. He wrote a book that turned out it was sort of a, a, a things to come. He, he was like he saw 2020 coming and talked about how churches would respond in a book he'd written decades earlier. I was introduced to him through a video series called How Should We Then Live? I was 17 years old. And the principal, I was going to a Christian school, the principal wanted us to watch this video series. He thought it was really good. Well, I took one look at this dude, and I said, there's no way I'm letting a guy in knickers tell me what to do. <laughs> I mean, I think he was, he was right about five feet tall. And uh, he looks like he's on his way to a Renaissance festival. But I was a fool, because I have read this guy and if I could have paid more attention to that series that he did, it would have been extremely helpful. As a matter of fact, this is one of my favorite quotes. There's nothing more ugly than an orthodoxy without understanding or without compassion. You could say that another way. People don't care what you know till they know that you care. God made no mistake when he called you to his service. He knew exactly what he was doing. He knows exactly who you are. He knows exactly what you're capable of. He knew the sins that you would commit even after becoming a Christian. Didn't stop him. He fully evaluated you and said, yep, you're the one. And I'm going to call you, and I've got work for you to do. So he calls, he evaluates, but he doesn't end there. God also empowers. He empowers. We see this in the text down uh, in verse 13. It says, So Samuel took the horn full of olive oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day onward. Then Samuel got up and went to Ramah. This ceremony of, with the oil is a consecration means that he was going to be set apart. Now, is David still going to have his struggles? You bet he's still going to have his struggles. He's still going to mess up. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, he's going to mess up a lot. But he will be empowered to do what God intends for him to do. And the Holy Spirit, you see, was alive and active and working in the Old Testament, and he's alive and active and working today. And he's gifted you to serve his bride the church. He's empowered you to do that. So he empowers, and, and what does that actually mean? There's this wonderful quote that I came across uh, whenever I was studying. It says, this means both that we should be cautious about judging other people and their potential effectiveness in the kingdom of God, and also that we should not question our own abilities and gifts for service. We may feel that we do not have much to offer God, but that would be a superficial evaluation based on our own limited perspective, if God calls, he also empowers. Do you see the people around you as empowered and called 
servants of the Almighty God. Because that's exactly who you are. Again, Ephesians 2.10, it tells us that God saved us. Why? To do the good works that he planned in advance for us to do. Now, this leads us to our last question, then. How do I view people that way? How can I view people the way that God does? Um, we've been talking about, yeah, and, and the text brings up outward appearances and not judging a book by its cover. However, this could also speak to someone who may have different ideas and perspectives than you do. And I think in probably one of the most divisive times that I feel like I've experienced in my lifetime, we have people that sit on both sides of the aisle with different thoughts about politics and masks and all kinds of things. And I believe it's important that we view everybody beyond that. We aren't just our ideas. So first of all, I want to suggest five ways here. First of all, assume the best. Assume the best. And it's much easier said than done. We naturally assume the best about ourselves, as a matter of fact. Um, and research, research shows that we inflate our good qualities. So here's some good news. If you're like most people, you're way above average at almost everything. This is called illusory superiority. And it's also called the Lake Wobegon effect. That's from a Garrison Keillor uh, writer at a fictional town in Minnesota where he say that all the children are above average. Remember that? That's called the illusory sense of illusory superiority. It simply means that we inflate our positive qualities and abilities, especially in comparison to other people. We naturally think we're better than the average person. And they've done a lot of studies on this. We overestimate ourselves. They asked a million high school students how well they got along with their peers. Nobody rated themselves below average. 60% of students believe they were in the top 10%. 25% rated themselves in the top 1%. Now, you would think that college professors might have more insight, but they were just as biased about their abilities. 2% rated themselves below average. 10% were of average. 10% were average, and 63% were above average. And 25% thought they were truly exceptional. Now, this is statistically impossible. And it's just to demonstrate that we don't see ourselves the right way. And one of the researchers summed up the data this way. It's the great contradiction the average person believes he is a better person than the average person. <laughs> In regard to that Lake Wobegon effect, another guy said that one of the clearest conclusions of social science research is that we are proud. We think better of ourselves than we really are. We see our faults in faint black and white rather than in vivid color, and we assume the worst in others while assuming the best in ourselves. I believe that all of us want other people to assume the best about us. They want to think, we want to think other people understand that, well, we did things with the right intentions. We did what we thought we were supposed to do. That's the way we want to be treated. I think it echoes Ephesians 4 too. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other. Making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. We all got faults. All of us. 
And I think all of us want others to assume the best about us. So in just keeping with the golden rule, if you want to do unto others as you would have them do unto you, you need to also assume the best in them. And then secondly, and this goes hand in hand with assuming the best, delay judgment. Delay judgment. This is what we just saw the prophet Samuel have to do. We got a glimpse inside of his head. Fortunately, it didn't sound like he said those things out loud. Like, oh, this guy, he looks like he's the king. Look how tall. Nope. Okay. Well, this second guy. Nope. Okay. Sound like he's having this internal conversation with himself. He thought these other guys looked kingly. It just got him in trouble. You know, Saul, that bad king, he looks kingly too. Now, we don't want to be careless and make quick assumptions about somebody based on their appearance. Or just because we heard something about someone. Be careful, when, be careful when you're talking about someone to someone else who has never met the other person and you jade their judgment on them. Delay it. If you hear something about somebody, just hold off. Don't let that information down in the heart. Give them a chance. Be slow to speak, slow to become angry. And then how can you do that? How can you get to know someone? Well, number three, ask questions. Ask questions. How do you know what someone is thinking or feeling unless you ask them? Do you like for someone to ask you questions, to take an interest in you, to hear what you have to say about something, to understand your perspective on something? Or have you just decided you know what you want to know from them? It's interesting when you look at Jesus and you, you read about him in the New Testament. To be God himself and to be all-knowing, he sure did ask a lot of questions. I recently came across a list of why we should ask questions. I think these were insightful. To acquire knowledge, to eliminate confusion, to cause someone else to feel special or important, to demonstrate humility to another, to enable a person to discover answers for themselves. I think this is what Jesus was so good at. To gain empathy through better understanding of another's view. To begin a relationship, to strengthen a relationship. To gain a person's attention, to solve a problem. To reach agreement or to agree to disagree, but with clarity. I had breakfast with a great friend of mine this past week, and we sat down and we just said, you know what? Men can disagree. Godly men can disagree on something. It's okay. Do it with clarity. And if we had God's knowledge, maybe we wouldn't have to ask all these questions. But again, God sure asks an awful lot of questions. And it wasn't for his benefit. It was for the other person's benefit. So ask questions. And then next, seek understanding. Seek understanding. Now that begins with a heart that wants to understand. I read this story about Garth Brooks. He was uh, getting ready to hit the stage, and he was in Detroit and he was wearing the jersey of a retired Detroit Lions football player uh, named Barry Sanders. However, people who saw this only saw the name Sanders. This was in 2020. They read Sanders, and under it they read 20. They thought the shirt was meant to convey support for Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders, who at the time was in this race with Joe Biden, this was a presidential election year, and somebody responds, said, good grief. On Instagram, they said, can't you just do what you were paid to do? 
Why do you have to involve politics in a concert? They said, we don't pay good money for anything other than to watch you perform. Now see, when you don't seek understanding, and you just act on something like that, and we get caught up in this instant outrage, we really run the risk of looking foolish. Trust me on that, because I've done it enough to know. Instead, a, a better posture to, is to seek understanding as we seek to be peacemakers for the gospel of Jesus Christ. So seek understanding. And then next, finally, be teachable. Be teachable. None of us are all-knowing. None of us have this exhaustive subject, uh, knowledge on any subject. So when you meet with somebody that, you're, that you feel in your heart you're in opposition to them, you can just feel it. Slow down. Man, slow down. And think to yourself, you know, I may just have something to learn from this person. That's the attitude of being teachable. And it's so important, again, for the gospel of Jesus Christ. So summing this all up, be patient and humble getting to know someone. Be patient and humble getting to know someone. Don't assume. Don't assume. Give them a chance. Assume the best. I want to close with a story by... Uh, there's a writer named George MacDonald. If you're not familiar with the name George MacDonald, if you know who C.S. Lewis is and you know who J.R. Tolkien are, they considered uh, George MacDonald to be the master writer. And um, he wrote a story about a young minister. He'd just been assigned to this very small church in England who couldn't afford a full-time pastor. There was a young single guy. His name was Thomas Wingfold in the story. And he really only chose in ministry, he, he chose it as a profession, he just needed something to do, he needed a way to make money, so he decided, well, I'll go into the ministry. And uh, he was challenged by a skeptic in the community who looked at him and said, tell me honestly, do you really believe one word of all that? That shook his confidence. And this young pastor, he had nothing to answer, and he, did, he went through all this agony and soul-searching and he said, well, I'm just going to finish out the year this, at this church, and I'm going to go do something else. But then a second crisis came, and this was even worse than the, the first. Because of all that shallowness and the spiritual unease he was feeling, he started copying the sermons of another guy in town. And he got a letter from one of the parishioners who recognized it as a copy. And he wrote back and acknowledged the truth. And he wanted to meet the man in order to confess to him and ask for help. So this gifted parishioner, his name was Joseph, he came and met with Thomas, finally. They meet face to face. And to Thomas's shock, he met face to face with a tragically deformed dwarf. As a matter of fact, it says he looked so terrible that he was described as ghastly in appearance. He was pitied by the community that was around him. But this young minister gets to know him and realizes he's a giant in the faith. So early in their relationship, the two men, they share their stories in complete honesty. The dwarf, his name was, was Joseph Polwart. He narrated his painful childhood. He talks of being sent away to a boarding school because he was an embarrassment to his family. And of the ways he learned to cope with the, the derision and the teasing and the jokes of all the other children. Then as an adult, he learned to deal with his deformities and get on with his life, but he remained dissatisfied with himself, he said. And through a, a bunch of painful experiences, he confessed that 
He discovered his heart was full of envy and vindictiveness and conceit. And he concluded and said that I began to be aware that heavy affliction as it was to be made so different from others. My outward deformity was but a picture of my inward condition. And that following summer, he committed himself to being a reader of the New Testament and became acquainted with the man Jesus Christ. The minister, Wingfold, confessed his own, he confessed his own miserable condition. He said he passed all his exams in church with decency, ordained after two years of false preaching, ordained and after two years of false preaching, found himself to be a pastor. And this young clergyman confides that Christianity seems useless to him, and he's utterly without direction, though he finds himself now pastoring this good little church in England. And in complete despair, he commits himself to meeting with Joseph Polwart regularly for the purpose of reading and studying the Bible together. And as this novel begins to unfold, this handsome young minister, he comes to respect and appreciate this young, deformed dwarf, older, deformed dwarf, more than anybody else he's ever known. And he moves from faith in an idea of God to the God himself. See, the truth about a person is a matter of the heart and not a matter of the eyes. So be patient. Get to know somebody. Give them the benefit of the doubt. Assume the best about them. Delay making sharp judgments about them, no matter what you may know about them. Let's pray together. Almighty God, how many times have we lost out on opportunities because of our shallowness and our inability to see people the way that you do? And God, I pray that we would delay judgment. Lord, I know how many times I have been way too quick to judge. God, I pray that you'd forgive us for not assuming the best in someone the way that you do. For not seeing our brothers and sisters as empowered and called servants. For, for looking up to somebody unfairly or looking down on someone unfairly. It reveals our own pride. And God, I thank you for everyone here today. Lord, if there's someone here who does not know you, I pray at the end of the service they would come up. And they would ask about how they could have a relationship with you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.